I'm very conscious of going to women-owned businesses to support and participate in activities, functions they're doing. My purchasing power goes to a lot of women business owners because I, I just think we need to help each other in order to all flourish as a community. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, I'm talking with Melinda Yee Franklin, the Community Engagement and Corporate Responsibility Executive for the West Region at JPMorgan Chase. Melinda is a longtime advocate for Asian Americans, and I'm honored to be speaking with her about her work and personal experiences. It is such an important conversation, especially as we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month this May. I hope you enjoy it. So Melinda, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Sam. I'm honored to be part of the podcast and look forward to our conversation today. I'd love to start out by talking about your career background, as our listeners definitely love a good career story. So you started in the public sector, and I just wanted to know what appealed to you about government and public policy? Why did you gravitate toward that at the beginning of your career? It was an interesting journey because when I was junior in college, way back when, I did an internship. I was at UC San Diego. I did a summer internship in Washington, D.C. And having been born and raised in California, I had always read the newspaper and watched the TV news and recognize that the public policies, things we hear about every day in the news was happening in Washington, D.C., where policy was being set. And so I was just very intrigued by that. So to be able to go to D.C. back in the day to intern for my hometown congressman was really quite incredible. And I was fortunate because he he gave me really solid projects. It wasn't just your run-of-the-mill you know, internship where I was a clerical support. I was just super cool. And I thought, wow, this is where I want to be at, at least at the start of my career. So I ended up coming back to California, finished college, and then after grad school, moved to DC for 10 years. And tell us then about some of the roles that you had there, because you were serving in many capacities, sort of at different um, organizations and cabinets. Sure. Yeah. I started off, the first job was in a telecommunications consulting firm. Then I moved over to a big leap to civil rights advocacy when I was in my 20s to be the executive director of the Organization of Chinese Americans, which was a civil rights group that very, very small, but we didn't, as an Asian American community, didn't have much of a voice, but it was you know, the very teeny equivalent to an NAACP, an Urban League, a National Council of Letteros. It was representing the Asian community on various issues. And then after that, moved over to the Democratic National Committee, where I met another one of my mentors, Ron Brown, who was the chair of the DNC and worked on constituency developing policy and, and issues around various constituencies in the Democratic Party, and then was able to move down to Little Rock, Arkansas during the run of then-candidate Bill Clinton. And then once the Democrats won, was able to move into the White House. And again, just a, that was in the span of three or four years. So it was quite a journey. There's something really nice about Washington where so many people aren't from Washington, but they all come there with such a passion 
for government. So I imagine it was an exciting time to be there and to meet other peers. And as you say, immerse yourself in great projects. Oh, yeah. They're, they're friends for life, right? Because we, we went through a lot together during that time, having spent time in the White House and then being able to roll over to the U.S. Department of Commerce in a senior role, both in the International Trade Administration and then actually in the office of the secretary. And tragically ended when Secretary Brown and many of his, many of my close friends were killed in a plane crash. And that happened in the mid-1990s. And that was certainly a wake-up call for me in terms of at that, at that point, I had been in D.C. for just about 10 years, and I thought, wow, you know, it's been a ride. It's been hard to experience a lot of ultra highs and certainly ultra lows. And to me, it was time to come home back to California, and that's, that's what I did. And so in terms of the different roles you've had at both the federal government levels and local levels, you know, how would you describe the difference in how you approach your work and get things done? Do you feel more of a personal touch or connection when you're working at a local level in government? So it was really, really interesting because I had been working on presidential trade missions, uh, U.S. Department of Commerce, staffing Congress people, going to Haiti and going to Asia throughout Europe. And so I had been this international world traveler in my job and was able to translate that to the local level, which was very cool. I mean, because my headset was doing things at the presidential level, right? You know, Mayor Willie Brown, who was, you know, a force of nature unto himself, he was formerly the speaker of this assembly and then became the mayor of San Francisco. What was cool was that, you know, he was treated by virtue of who he was as a head of state. <laughs> and that was my mindset too. So we were meeting with heads of state presidents, premiers, as we were doing these international trips to our sister cities. And we were able to bring local leaders, business, civic, nonprofit leaders with us. And I really, really got ingrained in the San Francisco community, the Bay Area business community, which was fantastic. Yeah. Tell us more about that because you did then so much more and continue to do so much by playing such an active role in the Bay Area. I think what happened was I did that for four years with the mayor for his entire first term. And at that point, I'd always been a little intrigued by, gosh, I've been doing all of this public service, which has been really, really fascinating and interesting. But I had this inkling within saying, I need to explore the private sector because I'm working with all these folks who are doing all this great work. It seems like decisions may be getting done a little quicker than how decisions are made and the, the no knock on government service and public sector. Very bureaucratic, correct? So it became, okay, how do I engage and maybe explore my horizons in, in, in the private sector? So I was able to come on with a startup called Meet China that became Meet World Trade. It was doing international B2B work and then took time off because I had a child and still continued consulting with clients that were both public and private sector, having done my startup work, there was an opportunity to be able to work with United Airlines as the head of corporate and government affairs for the West region. And I felt like, yeah, that's a good job for me because that combines the skill sets I've learned in the public sector, both at the federal and local level. It was it, it was a really good fit for me at the time and stayed at United for 14 years. I love how you made that transition to the private sector in something that was very familiar to you, using skills you had built over a very long time. You know, I think as our listeners constantly think about their own careers and maybe how to make career moves. You know, how would you counsel folks to think about taking a big jump like that, 
with a confidence in the skills that you would bring to a new role. Yeah, I think when you when you package yourself, for lack of a better term, or create you know create the narrative of of your journey, just think about how that translates into other things that are related but not necessarily the same. Literally, I just did it because I just started at J.P. Morgan Chase in January, so I'm a newbie on the scene. But being able to have a whole new adventure, a whole new challenge, I really wanted to explore new horizons, new new beginnings. So was very fortunate and blessed to land here at J.P. Morgan Chase. And it's been, it's been quite, a, quite an adventure in the last four months. Well, welcome to the firm officially. And I'm sure it's never easy coming in during a pandemic when it's harder to meet your colleagues, but hopefully you've been able to do that. So you're the West Region Executive for Community Engagement within our Corporate Responsibility Group. Can you tell us what you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So we stood up a new department, essentially, the Office of Community Engagement which is a combination of three really vital functions within our corporate responsibility team, community reinvestment, community partnerships, Office of Public Affairs, and the Office of Nonprofit Engagement. So making those as one to really localize the work that we're doing, going into the communities, working with the nonprofit leaders, and really developing a narrative around what we're doing, how we're showing up into the community, and working really closely with our, our philanthropy colleagues as well as our government affairs colleagues to really shine a light on the good work that J.P. Morgan Chase is doing, as well as identify problem points, pain points we may have, and really work to fix those and find great solutions as well. So the path forward work that you mentioned, this is the firm's $30 billion commitment to help Black and Latinx communities thrive and have access to financial, housing, other resources in a bigger way. So many of our priorities are aligned against this vision right now and this multi-year commitment. Can you give us some examples of how working with the community can really make a tangible difference? You know, some of the partnerships we have on the ground that you see bearing fruit, especially against the Path Forward commitments. So my region covers California to Arizona to Nevada, Colorado, and around to the state of Washington and Oregon. So it's that full circle on the West. So we really look at how can we engage, again, engage a community, our nonprofit partners, how can we get within, as you said, the path forward commitment with those partners to really amplify what we're doing. So we'll hold listening sessions, community roundtables, and we're working closely with our friends in global philanthropy to make some significant announcements as well. So how can we pull all those pieces together we're really broadening that piece to make it corporate wide. And so it's been quite, it's great because I feel like we can help to facilitate the right communications. And again, that to me, that third party influencer piece is so important to have people, not just us tooting our own horn, but that we have community partners, community leaders also saying, wow, JP Morgan Chase, they're not just empty words. They're actually doing this work. They're in the community. They're making a difference. Thereby, we become that bank of choice and the, and the partner they want to go to and be customers for life. I think this is a model that the bank has really used for some time. You know, our work in Detroit is probably a great example of that, where we go into communities, understand the partners on the ground really deeply, what the skills they already bring to the table are, and then what the needs really are, and how they can best solve the needs in their own communities. 
you know, as you pull together different groups, how do you see a bank playing a role in bringing together the skills already there and making maybe making more connections to facilitate even more good work happening? It was interesting. When I left United, the president of United Airlines called me and he said, you know what the difference is between your job and that you have and your job going forward? And I said, what? And he said, he said, resources. You're going to have access to resources. And so I sort of knew what he was talking about. But now as I've been in this seat and it's playing out and I'm seeing the kind of initiatives that are being stood up by the various lines of businesses, including our own, it's it's been quite incredible. But with home lending or with the Entrepreneurs of Color Fund or with supplier diversity, as I mentioned before, when these pieces all come together and we can magnify and amplify and again, bringing our nonprofit partners to the table to really listen and learn and to understand uh, the resources that we bring to the table, that's really quite something. And as you mentioned, the Detroit example, we are truly making a difference. And as much as we can apply that model to other communities throughout the country, the better. And coming out of COVID, it's just, I'll give you an example, being in San Francisco and being the chairman of the board of the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, there's just so much. I go downtown frequently and it's still a ghost town. And probably 50 to 60% of small businesses are going to be gone from start of COVID to now, fast forward a year and a couple of months. So how can we help as J.P. Morgan Chase to really help to rebuild and garner the strength of helping small businesses and businesses in general to really rebuild and, and make these small businesses of color, women-owned businesses, how can we really help them to rise again? And I, ICS is really being critical to to that success. I think your background is just so unique with having so much experience in the public sector and in commerce specifically. In the private sector, you know, when you think about the relationship that companies have to form with governments to get things done locally, do you think we're in a good place to really make a lot of strides by bringing both public and private partnerships together? Yes, um, that that public-private piece is incredibly important with infrastructure development, for example, with, with the bill that's in Congress right now and how that translates into the cities, as well as the COVID-19 uh, relief funding. How, you know, how, how can how can we play a part of that with with our bank? How does it fit in into that overall equation? So I think we can be part of so many different opportunities working closely with our cities throughout the country. You mentioned you're the chairwoman of the board of the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. So given that so much is happening with businesses now locally and small businesses in particular, what is the Chamber of Commerce focused on right now in terms of really helping businesses get back on their feet? I would say that you know, the, this this piece of, of rebuilding small businesses is huge. It's overall, how can we work with the city and county of San Francisco to implement and execute programs that are going to jumpstart the economy? So always very closely tied with with the mayor and with her team. We're very close to the new economic development director. You know, we are just part of that economic recovery task force and, and trying to determine what what will be best for the city. And everything has been quite jump-started because of the fact that the vaccines are now so readily available. And California is actually, we, we were on a slump, but now I just read today that we're, we went from worst to 
first in terms of how we're doing with the vaccine process. So the city and county is, is opening up very, very quickly as the whole state. And I would encourage your listeners to really consider board service because I think, you know, that's the way J.B. Morgan Chase can make a difference within the communities that they serve. No, I think that's a great idea. When you sit on nonprofits, especially in your own area, you know, you really get to see the work up close and can develop such a personal attachment to that. You know, when you work with the Chamber of Commerce and through J.P. Morgan, what do you think we're all doing well when it comes to supporting women and minority-owned businesses? And what do you think we need to be doing more of? I do think the stats show that we as women tend to be, we're, we're getting better, but underrepresented in terms of leadership roles. So I think being able to promote and support as many women as possible to these leadership roles. When I just mentioned about serving on boards, for example, it's great to start off as a board member for the chamber. For example, we have 56 board members. It's quite a lot. And I I had been on the chamber for probably about 10 years and then was identified as as a leader within the organization as a board member. But then it took on more and more increasing, uh, increasingly major leadership roles within the committee structure. And then lo and behold, became vice chair and now chair for the last couple of years. And I do think it's really important for us to step up to not just serve as board members, but to eventually become leaders of the board, because those are the kind of situations where you can have a lot more influence, frankly, you know, being a board leader. And so, again, just just want to put another plug into that. And then also just say that the company should should do all we can, the firm, to support our leaders in those positions to be successful. But I see that as, you know, one avenue. And then just, you know, again, being able to support um, other women leaders and business owners to flourish. If we, you know, I'm very conscious of going to women-owned businesses to, you know, support and participate in activities, functions are doing. My purchasing power goes to a lot of women business owners because I I just think we need to help each other in order to all flourish as a community. So Melinda, I'd love to talk about your work with the Organization of Chinese Americans, OCA. This is an organization whose mission is to advance the social, political, and economic well-being of the Asian Pacific American community. Can you talk about your work there and especially right now, why that work is so important? Sure, sure. You know, I was doing civil rights advocacy, especially a lot on hate crimes back in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. And it's very tragic to me that fast forward to 2021, here we are. You know, I myself have been, I would say, subject to hate speech over the years. I mentioned in that article I wrote that was on the company homepage that I was told to go back to China by a a U.S. senator during a Senate hearing. So, you know, it's been going on for a really long time. Historically, my great-grandparents came, my grandfather came over to work on the transcontinental railroads in in the 1880s and, you know, was was subject to bullying and harassment. The the, uh, Chinese community as a whole were paid 30 to 50 percent less in in wages. They were given the hardest jobs and many were killed. Over a thousand were killed and were barely buried in in graves of of even. So we've had, I I don't want to give the whole history, but we've had a very painful, difficult history over the years as a community. And, you know, I think to go into now 2021, 2020, since COVID to 2021, with the Asian Pacific American community being blamed, essentially, for COVID, the rhetoric out there of Kung flu and China virus 
we've become targets. And with the advent of, of the video cameras, camera phones, where people are seeing these shocking incidences of, of literally people getting pounded on, the woman in New York in front of the luxury building to, you know, the gentleman in San Francisco just being shoved and hitting his head and dying to the, the six Asian women being killed in Atlanta at the spa shootings. We've had many, many incidences, over 3,800 recorded incidences from one year to one year, February of 2020 to February of 2021. So it's been a really, really hard time to say the least. And I'm really encouraged by J.P. Morgan Chase taking a leadership role in this to really step up with Jamie making a statement right immediate, literally the day after Atlanta saying enough is enough and condemning anti-hate violence uh, against Asian Americans. And and mind you, the backdrop of all the racial incidences going on with the Derek Chauvin trial, which gratefully ended up in a guilty verdict, but, you know, to Dante Wright with uh, the 20-year-old gentleman getting shot by police. I mean, the, there's just so much out there, right? And it, it's quite overwhelming for all of us. And, you know, we we just, as, as a company, again, I'm just proud we're stepping up in all these issues of racial equity. We were also able to give a million dollar grants to three organizations, uh, the Asian American Federation in New York, Asian Americans Advancing Justice in DC and LA, and also the uh, Stop Asian AAPI Hate, which is out of uh, San Francisco and doing an employee match on top of that, that's already raised close to $150,000. It's a two for one match. So that multiply that. So we've been doing some excellent work now. And prior to that, having given in the last four years, approximately $43 million to the community just in general. So it's really a great thing to see that. And you know, we just want to keep educating, having conscious conversations internally and really friends, allies saying, how can we help and really provide the resources that are necessary to just keep rolling along as as long as these kind of incidences are out there, we need to be on the forefront of helping to resolve those and move forward. Completely agree. It has been heartening to see so many of us come together internally as a company to really address any stress, anxiety, just frustration that so many of us feel at seeing this ongoing set of events. What do you think other companies can be doing right now too? You know, how can we really tap more corporate partners to really address what's going on, particularly with the AAPI community? Sure. And I was fortunate last month to represent uh, JP Morgan Chase at a meeting in the White House with other corporate leaders as well as some nonprofit leaders and government officials, obviously. So it went really well. I think they're all in a similar path to us trying to figure out what's best for their company, both internally and externally. And some of the things I named, I think, are, are is represents great work. There's also some new organizations that are standing up to try to figure out how can we put funding in appropriate places. There's legislation. Just yesterday, there was a national bill that was passed addressing anti-Asian violence. So there's a lot of simultaneous work going on, and it's it's one of those things where, you know, the, the Asian American community represents about 7% of the population, and then in some states, it's much higher, and, and 
my state, uh, California, it's 15%. In San Francisco, 35% of the population. In New York City, 12% of the population. So in different pockets where we have a, a good base of customers and employees, we, we, we as a community are, are quite prominent. So I think as much as we can do to address, again, the needs of of our community and, and partners, both internally and externally, the better. Asian Pacific Heritage Month is coming up in May, so this is actually good timing of our talk today. We hope that, and there is a lot of programming being done by our Asian Executive Forum, as well as uh, Aspire, our BRGs and our, our executive network. Um, but in addition, you know, it shouldn't just, it, it was interesting because the programming was originally scheduled to happen all in May, but then after Atlanta, everything was expedited. So we did some programming in March, into April, and now into May. But, you know, we want it to be infused throughout the year, obviously, that these are not just, you know, and it's just like the Black community. We're not just celebrating Black History Month. We're celebrating the Black and Latinx communities and doing the hard work throughout the year. And we have that similar mindset for the Asian American community as well. Yes, the hard work is being done now day in and day out. It is really not only limited to these months as you're talking about. And when you think about individuals, what do you think individuals can do to make a difference when it comes to standing up against hate and supporting the community, whether it's you know other people or businesses? It's one of those, you know, do something, say something situations, right? And we are encouraging and we're we hope to stand this up within our, our company, but we have been referring folks to something called Hollowback Training that one of our partners that I mentioned, um, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, they've, they've uh, set up this partnership with this organization and Hollowback, and we can put that link on later, but they are great. The trainings are excellent and they don't, don't just do, they do, you know, stand up, say up how to stay safe. When you're, if you see something, how do you deal with it type situations? And, and it looks at diversity, equity, and inclusion, and racial equity, and, tra- and training in general for various communities. So that's been a really good resource. And just be there for your colleagues and friends. I've had so many wonderful calls uh, from throughout, you know, our, my network is quite extensive throughout my times in, in different work functions, as well as personally, being able to just be there as a friend and a colleague. So in corporate responsibility, we've already had three conscious conversations. The first one was just with our Asian employee network, which was approximately 25 to 30 people. Then we did the second one with allies. And then the third one, which was last Friday, which I referenced was also with allies and, you know, really heavy duty stuff because, you know, again, the backdrop of everything going on in the world, you know, a lot of folks do feel helpless and exhausted. And sometimes just being able to talk about it is is a really, really good thing. So I'm always, encouraging folks to do that and to take the extra step. Sometimes these these conversations are difficult and uncomfortable, but you know, if one really wants to help, just you know, one has to decide can I put myself in that situation and really try to see through the lens of someone who's actually going through it what that looks like. I actually have a son who's black and he's 20 years old and to me with a Dante Wright killing that one really resonated when they all resonate with me but that one in particular because he kind of looked like my son and 
you know, I'm a mother. I saw the mother on, on television and, you know, I shed some tears because I said, God, that could have been me. And here with everything going on, I worry about that phone call that, you know, something for whatever reasons happened to my son who happens to be a sophomore at Columbia University and doing really well, but it could happen to him too. So, you know, it's, it's those kind of things where sometimes just being a, an ear to hear where what someone's story is, what their narrative is, it's important. And, and I hope we can all be there for each other during these challenging times. It is heartbreaking, as you say, and I really appreciate your sharing that personal story with us so we can better understand each other, understand that we all come from different places, but can very much relate when we see these just shocking and horrible situations happening across the country. Linda, I just want to say thank you so much for talking to us about your experiences and all of your amazing work uh, here at JP Morgan, of course, but in many other organizations before coming here. Thank you for being just such a consistent advocate for so many people. Oh, thank you, Sam. It's been such an honor to be with you and, and your team and look forward to a brighter, brighter future for all of us. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Melinda Yee Franklin. I loved hearing about her background in the public and private sectors and how she transitioned to different roles using her deep skills and networks. Her personal and professional experiences make her an ideal leader for our community engagement efforts. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.